0: This ceremony was officiated by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold Roshi at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at ZMM.org. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everyone. Nice to have you all here, particularly family and friends who are here to uh, celebrate and witness and be part of um, these five students who are receiving the Bodhisattva precepts this morning. In the Buddha's teaching, and all the way down to the present time, one of the essential aspects of training is, we speak of as a shila, the precepts, moral teachings that take a particular form in our lineage. the 16 precepts of the Bodhisattva. And that that practice and training along with the development of one's meditation, calming the mind, developing a deep concentration, and the awakening of wisdom to see through all of our false and illusory views and attachments and Habitual patterns, way of thinking and responding that cause pain and suffering, confusion. When we look closely within our lives, when we look far and see all of the many ways in which um, suffering and confusion and pain and all of the things that cause heartache in the world, what we see is these teachings these precepts not being practiced not being present or fully present what we see is is attachment we see false views not clear and accurate ways of seeing ourselves and each other not understanding in a basic sense how the world works and so the buddha over 2,500 years ago, initiated what we might call an inner revolution, recognizing that in order to address the many illnesses of the world, we have to turn towards the root of those illnesses, which is within ourselves. And that if we want to truly help and be of service to others, and trying to alleviate their suffering, then we have to alleviate our own. And in that we discover the sources of that, the roots of that. We also, in that inquiry, in that very practice, we are cultivating compassion, we are learning and discovering what is compassion. In Buddhism it's based in the Buddhist fundamental enlightenment, which is transmitted generation after generation, which is We speak of a selflessness, that the self is non-abiding, that there is no essence, no substantial, eternal entity or substance within us that holds the essence of you or me, in a sense your code, your distinctness, that that is arising and departing in every moment. And so these precepts arising out of the realization of selflessness, that all things are without any inherent, fixed, eternal, characteristic, or attribute. Rather than make the world appear meaningless, actually gives it tremendous import, and moment, and significance. Because it means that in every moment we are together, and within ourselves, creating this world. And so when we see suffering, we're creating that suffering, creating it, gives us then a pathway to cease from creating. And that's what these precepts are all about. They are themselves, like all dharmas, are empty of any fixed characteristics. And so while they're not ambiguous, or ambivalent, or relativistic, they are not fixed, and so they are not dogmatic. And what that means is that practitioners have to be fully alert and awake, because in each moment, each moment, is fresh and new, and so if we bring a fixed idea, a fixed rule, to something that is not fixed, there will be a collision. There will be a conflict. And so within Buddhism's very strong moral teaching, the Buddha said it's not possible to enlighten our minds without a strong moral life, that as human beings we are fundamentally living in a moral world that within the strength and emphasis on that is the recognition that they are not to be grasped at or attached to or made into rigid, fixed ideas, because that will create more suffering. And we see that. We see how when religious teachings, which in and of themselves may be good, are grabbed onto and made into rigid, fixed ideologies, that never turns out well. These, teacher, these students have been in training for at least a couple of years. And so, while we need to be practicing these precepts from the moment we begin training, and we do, we don't take vows in our lineage, in our sangha, until somewhat later. Because the taking of vows is considered a very important thing. Right? There's something internally that is happening that is coming into alignment where we are making a decision and a commitment about how we want to live our lives. And that creates a more significant karma, a more significant weight, you might say, to our actions. And so we need to be clear and sure that that's really what we want to do. And so these students will begin, so they have been in training for at least a couple of years, many of them, some of them for much longer, and will now, having studied and practiced these precepts for those years, will now make formal vows, and all of you are witnessing that. And so you are helping them to make those vows strong. First, they will do a series of vows. These first vows are to the Buddha. And so we're acknowledging our, our basic streams of affinity, you might say, of um, conditions that are allowing us to be here today, allowing these students to be here today. So first they bow to the Buddha, our original teacher, who began this path many centuries ago. And because these series of bows are to our ancestors, we should also acknowledge the ancestors of this land, the Munsi, the Lenape people, who lived on these properties for thousands of years before they were taken away from it. Next, the students will bow to their parents. If their parents are here, they'll bow directly to them. Something we should have been doing all along. (laughs) Um, If their parents are deceased or living elsewhere, they'll go into the Buddha Hall and bow to them there. Into the into the direction of where they are, living or buried, and so this is acknowledging our bloodstream, how we were brought into this life, and so this is an expression of of recognition of these gifts that we have received, and an expression of gratitude, and that plays a very important role in Buddhist practice and teaching. There's constant voice given and and embodiment of the fact of recognition that we are receiving and we are giving. We are receiving and we're giving all the time, which means that we're always in a in a state of, of very intimate mutual uh, obligation, relationship that is to correct that view that if we have it, that we might have, that we have somehow arrived here on our own, accomplished what we have by ourselves. And the last series of vows is to the kaishi, which means precept teacher, in this case myself. So next we'll do the invocation of the Three Treasures. And we spoke during the week about how these moral teachings our meditation, really all that we do, um, what makes them Buddha Dharma, what makes them um, an essential integral part of this path is the Three Treasures, that everything we do is based in the understanding and ultimate realization of Buddha, the teacher, the original teacher, Shakyamuni, as well as all enlightened beings that have come down to us and passed this teaching down to us. The Dharma, which is the teachings that point us towards reality and give us a way to practice and transform our body and mind, and the minds of others, as well as all phenomenal reality, because all things abide in their own perfect state of completeness. And Sangha, which is this particular community, practicing here on this mountain. It is the larger community of all Buddhist practitioners. But because all beings have Buddha nature, in light nature, it includes all humans and all creatures, sangha at large. So we will invoke the three treasures. <clears throat> so choki. And everyone, please, up. <clears throat> Be one with the Buddha in the ten directions. Be one with the Dharma in the ten directions. Be one with the sangha in the ten directions be one with our original teacher Shakyamuni Buddha be one with the great compassionate Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva be one with the great wise Samantabhadra Bodhisattva be one with the great wise Manjushri Bodhisattva be one with Kosojoya Daishi be one with Taisojo Josadashi. be one with the great successive ancestors be one with the Buddha in the Ten Directions, be one with the Dharma in the Ten Directions, be one with the Sangha in the Ten Directions, be one with our original teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, be one with the great compassionate Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, be one with the great wise Samantabhadra Bodhisattva, be one with the great wise Manjushri Bodhisattva, be one with Koso Joyodaishi, be one with Taiso Josai be one with the successive great ancestors. Be one with the Buddha in the ten directions. Be one with the Dharma in the ten directions. Be one with the Sangha in the ten directions. Be one with our original teacher, Shakyamuni Buddha. Be one with the great compassionate Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva. Be one with the great wise Samantabhadra Bodhisattva. Be one with the great wise Manjushri Bodhisattva. Be one with Koso Joyodaishi. Be one with Taiso Josadaishi Be one with the successive great ancestors. Next, we'll do the goth of Atonement. So in Buddhism, an essential teaching is karma, action, intentional action that arises out of something that is desired. And that we commit those actions with our thoughts, our words, and our body. And the intention that brings forth those actions is very important because if it's arising out of greed or anger, jealousy, pride then that that mind, that impulse, that desire flows into the action and affects its consequence. And thus we see that every war, although it may end, rather than really bringing ultimate peace, is really preparing the next conflict. And so karma arising from thought, word, and action When it arises from greed, anger, delusion, we call the three poisons, causes a lot of pain and suffering. But how would it be if those very same instruments of action arise from generosity, patience, compassion, loving-kindness, tolerance? Then we have very different actions and very different consequences. And so in this Goth of atonement. Atonement is to take full responsibility for all of our actions, because we all arrive into practice having lived a life. And what that means is we have done some good, because here we are. And we've also caused some harm, because here we are. And so, in order to move forward more freely, because if we don't move forward more freely, but rather accumulate the karmic weight of our actions, then that weight will make us much more susceptible and vulnerable to creating more harm as it binds us and and blinds us. And so we take responsibility for our actions, even when those actions have been committed under duress, under adverse circumstances, within unfair, unjust situations. That's recognized, and that's not insignificant, but the actions are ours. And, so, and, they, and that, that gives us the opportunity to actually liberate ourselves from the karma, free ourselves so that we can move forward more freely and wisely and compassionately, and in, the, in doing, discover how to help others to do that. And so we'll all do that together. And so everyone's invited to, to enter into this Goth of Atonement. Well, so we'll do this in call and response three times. Okay. Let's go show. <clears throat> Everyone, please go show, please. All evil karma ever committed by me since of old. All evil karma ever committed by me, since of old. On account of my beginningless greed, anger, and ignorance. On account of my beginningless greed, anger, and ignorance. Born of my body, mouth, and thought. <clears throat> body, mouth, now I atone for it all. Now I atone for it all. All evil karma ever committed by me since of old. All evil karma ever committed by me since of old. On account of my beginningless greed, anger, and ignorance. Born in my body, mouth, and thought. Now I atone for it all. All evil karma ever committed by me since of old. All evil karma ever committed by me since of old. All on account of my beginningless greed, anger, and ignorance. All <coughs> Born of my body, mouth, and thaw. Now I atone for it all. Now I atone for it all. Okay. Uh, Yukon, could you, could you give me a little water, please? Yukon. A little water. This is called shasui. It's a spurging. And What the Buddha realizes in his enlightenment is that we're all originally complete, perfect. Our minds are wondrous. Our awareness is radiant. Although we act in ways that turns against that. <clears throat> That's our nature. And there's a spurging, so is not a a cleansing or a purifying because originally there is nothing that needs to be purified but rather an expression of the intimacy of the mind that has been come down to us from the Buddha and all the Buddhas from time immemorial. Gosh, gosh, oh. many of the great religious traditions have rituals with the elements earth air fire and water <clears throat> which was also true in the buddha's time but what the buddha realized and taught was that the the essence of any ritual is your mind it's your awareness it's your intention it's how you understand what you're doing it's not in the action itself although the action is important in a sense he brought forth a radical kind of interiorization to spiritual practice, to living, really. So next we'll do the uh, Take Refuge in the Three Treasures. So having invoked the Three Treasures, now we take refuge, which is really one of the oldest, perhaps the oldest, most fundamental practice of Buddhism, common to all the schools taking refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and in the Sangha, and in all that Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha is. How we understand it, how we are relating to it, practicing it, and ultimately realizing it as our own body and mind. Taking refuge is, as Master Dogen says, to completely and utterly rely upon, trust, give ourselves to. And that's why it's important that in taking these vows you have been practicing, so that you gain understanding and are doing this with your eyes open. Understanding what you're doing and not just entering into something with a faith that is not eyes open. So again, we'll do this in call and response. I'll chant it once completely and then we'll do it again in call and response where everyone is invited to take refuge and then I'll do it one third time alone. Everyone, please, kasho. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. I take refuge in the Buddha, the incomparably honored one. I take refuge in the Dharma, honorable for its purity. I take refuge in the Sangha, honorable for its harmony. I have taken refuge in the Buddha. I have taken refuge in the Dharma. I have taken refuge in the Sangha. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the the Dharma. I take refuge in the the Sangha. I take refuge in the the Buddha, the incomparably honored one. Take refuge in the Dharma, honorable for its purity. I take refuge in the
1: Dharma, honorable for its purity.
0: I take refuge in the Sangha, honorable for its harmony. I take refuge in the Buddha. I have taken refuge in the Buddha. I have taken refuge in the Dharma. <laughs> I have taken refuge in the I have taken refuge in, the Sangha. I have <coughs> take refuge in the Sangha. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. I take refuge in the Buddha the incomparably honored one. I take refuge in the Dharma. Honorable for its purity. I take refuge in the Sangha. Honorable for its harmony. I have taken refuge in the Buddha I have taken refuge in the Dharma. I have taken refuge in the Sangha. Will you maintain this? I will. I will ask you to take refuge in the yes. Okay. Take a bow, please. Bow. <clears throat> it's said that when a teacher teaches, Talks too much, their eyebrows fall out. But I think for me, it's I lose my voice. <laughs> so, having taken refuge, the first three of the sixteen precepts. Now we uh, take the three pure precepts, and as we spoke about during the week, this is these precepts are these three precepts are very important. The grave precepts, as we'll see, speak to specific kinds of actions that we commit that cause particular kinds of trouble, internally and externally, for ourselves and others. And so they're specific to different things that we do, like anger and stealing and so on. The pure precepts are very broad. In a sense, they're very simple. And in their simplicity, we could mistake them for being simplistic. They are very profound. And they're incredibly important because life is complicated. Human relationships are complicated. We create complicated situations and systems. And that turning just to the great precepts does not always inform us sufficiently to be able to enter into and try and work with a situation so that we're actually alleviating the harm and bringing forth something good. There are situations where anything we do is going to cause some harm. And so we should cause the least amount of harm and bring about the greatest amount of good. And so these pure precepts can be very powerful guides in certain moments where you're in a situation you have not been in before, where you have to find your way. It's not clear how to move forward, but you must. And so these pure precepts become very, very important in guiding us, helping us, to examine and respond in this way. The first of the pure precepts is to not create evil. Evil does not just exist in the world, in ourselves, or anywhere. It is something that arises in our minds, that is created through thoughts, words, and actions. And so in that sense, it is only it exists within the human realm, And because of that, we have the, not only unique, but sole uh, responsibility of alleviating that. So to not create evil is to not bring what is harmful into the world, into our minds and into the world. Master Dogen said, this is the abiding place of all Buddhas. This is the very source of all Buddhas. Do not create evil. Will you maintain this? I am to not create evil. The second of the pure precepts is to practice good, all that is good, which means to bring forth all of the good and virtuous, excellent qualities that we all possess, that are an inextricable part of human nature and the enlightened mind, and to liberate those qualities and virtues from grasping from the sense of self, from all that would diminish, and distort them. Good, too, these virtues, too, do not exist inherently, as is true of all things. But we can bring them forth with our thoughts, our intentions, our aspirations, our words, our actions. This is the lifeblood of what practice is. Master Dogen said, this is the dharma of samyak sambodhi, perfect unexcelled enlightenment. This is the way of all beings. Practice good. Will you maintain this? I am bound to practice good. And the beauty of that second pure precept is it's just bringing those virtues forth in every moment, any moment, in any place. doesn't have to have anyone present. No one has to be receiving. It's just a way of being in the world. The third pure precept is to actualize good for others. So here, there's a very clear aspiration and commitment to making sure that what we bring forth that will be helpful will actually be helpful for others. That we're not living in isolation, in a silo. We are in intimate contact with our world. And so to actualize good for others. Master Dogen said, this is to transcend the profane and to be beyond the holy. This is to liberate oneself and others. Actualize good for others. Will you maintain this? I am allowed to actualize good for others. And in that teaching by Master Dogen, he's pointing to what I was speaking of earlier, to transcend the profane and be beyond the holy. That in receiving these precepts, they should rather than create a sense of elevation or somehow being superior to anyone. For practicing the Buddha way, for taking these vows, really they should bring forth a great and natural sense of humility. It's like standing at the foot of a great mountain, or at the edge of the vast sea, or under a vaulted sky, and realizing that while we are insignificant, small, in a great and vast world, we are not without influence and so to be unattached to these vows at the very moment that you're committing to them is a wonderful gift to the world next is the grave precepts so how do we live these three pair precepts how do we manifest and what are the sort of the forces the actions within human beings everywhere in every time that cause the most difficult kinds of life that cause the most suffering. They're not exhaustive in that they're not addressing every possible thing that we could do, but they're the universal ways that we use our thoughts and our words and our actions to create the most binding karma. And as we talked about, because they're not fixed, there are different perspectives that are part of the Zen tradition, the larger Buddhist tradition, the Zen tradition, and our own lineage. And so we looked at them from the point of view of the direct, sort of r- literal understanding, practice them as they appear, as they're spoken and received. But when that being, if, if to, to adhere to that too tightly would actually cause harm, then out of compassion, reverence for life, sometimes we have to manifest that particular precept in a way that might look from the outside to be contrary to it. But it's based in compassion, and so sometimes we have to bend because this situation demands that of us. And then there's the bodhidharma-one-mind precept. Because these are based in emptiness and selflessness, how do we manifest that? So to even give rise to the thought of a subject and an object, of an actor, an action, and a recipient as being inherently existing from the bodhidharma-one-mind precept is to already be on the path within duality of causing harm. So the first of the grave precepts is to affirm life, to not kill. And this is the fundamental way of being, is to try and be in the world in such a way that we are not causing harm, that all life is life. And to love life is our basic inclination. We don't want to just alleviate suffering. We want to be alive and to love this life. And as a bodhisattva, we want everyone to have a chance to love their lives. Every creature exists within an intricate, wondrous web of causation and conditions that mutually arises, and we are all a part of that. And so this precept is to live within that as best we can. That every creature is complete, wherever it is, each thing has its own virtue in and of itself. And so this precept is to respect that. And in killing, we take away that possibility of that person, that life form, that life force to fulfill itself within the world. And this is also to not harbor a mind of killing, of taking life. Dogen said life is non-killing. The seed of Buddha grows continuously to maintain the wisdom life of Buddha and do not kill life. Vow to affirm life, do not kill. Will you maintain this? I vow to affirm life, I will not kill. And now, of course, part of the arrangement with living things is that we take life to live. That's how it works. And so we, when we take life, we try to do so in as much awareness and respect as possible, and then to give that life back to others. The second great precept is to be giving, to not steal. Giving is the first of the paramitas. It's a fundamental Buddhist practice, spiritual practice. To give means to recognize that in any situation there's something we have to offer. As I spoke about earlier, giving is a universal language. When you give, offer someone a gift, everyone understands that. It also means that we have to let go of something to share with another. And so it's a basic fundamental practice of magnanimity. Without giving, we tend to find ourselves in a place of isolation, caught within a state of self-created separateness. But in giving, our mutual and really essential codependence becomes clear. It's self-healing. Giving is self-healing. And so this vow, vow is really to develop a non-grasping mind, to not seek our happiness or contentment in, in outside things to have unrealistic ideas about how something external could provide us with something ultimate. So to cultivate a mind of generosity and satisfaction rather than a mind of attachment. Dogen said, The mind and externals are just thus. The gate of liberation is open. Be giving. Vow to be giving. Do not steal. Will you maintain this? I vow to be giving. I will not to steal. One of the things we spoke about, and that's so important with these precepts, is karma. And so these precepts are pointing to not just the moment when we commit an action that is unskillful, but it's recognizing that that moment has been preceded by many, many moments, and a devotion of our energies to building up to that, all of which could be put into better service. Right? Because all of those moments, we're dedicating our, our mind, our thoughts, our emotions, our planning, our thoughts to doing something which ultimately is not for our benefit and is not for others' benefit. And so it's recognizing that in this precious life, which is fleeting, that we have the opportunity to refocus all of that energy towards something that's beneficial. And then the other aspect is that once that action has been committed, the karma is not over. It continues. And it continues in a way that we are not in control of. And so very often an action becomes something that we did not intend, that then requires an ongoing dedication of our energies, which again could be dedicated towards something that is much more helpful. I mean, just look around. And so the Buddha had the the wisdom to realize that each moment has to be seen within its larger context, which can also help us in a moment when we have an impulse to work in a way, move in a way that's not skillful, if we look more largely. We might want this, but we don't want that. right? And so that can be a very powerful way of helping us to realign. The third pure precept is to honor the body, to not misuse sexuality. And here, this body is physical, it's emotional, psychological, it's historical, it's spiritual, it's a Dharma body. Sexual energy is very powerful, right? Desire is present within every form of suffering, attachment to desire. But when that desire is liberated from attachment, from self-cleaning, it becomes bodhicitta. It is our aspiration. It is the aspiration that, you are, that is embodied in the vows that you're taking. Sexual desire specifically is a very powerful force. It can destroy love. It can bring forth love. It can divide us. It can bring us together. It can create deep, deep wounds. It can heal. Wounds. It's how we use it. And so, to, this vow is about recognizing that every person is a full human person, deserving dignity and respect in the wholeness of who they are, and to use our self, our bodies, our intimacy wisely. A person is not an idea, they're not our projection, they're not our desire. Right? So to honor the body, to honor the whole person. Master Dogen said the three wheels, body, mouth, and mind, greed, anger, and delusion are pure and clean. Nothing is ultimately desired. Go the same way as the Buddha. Vow to honor the body. Do not misuse sexuality. We maintain this. I vow to honor the body. I will not misuse sexuality. And because this force lives within us, this precept is not just about, or for those of us who are in an intimate relationship with others. It's about how we are in the world. The next great precept is to manifest truth, do not lie. This is often spoken of as one of the most important precepts of all, given that we're on a path of trying to realize and live in accord with what is true. When we open our dharma eye, we see that all things are true, that deception is a state of mind. Nothing exists in a state of deception. Falseness only exists within the way we see things. And this path is about seeing through all forms of deception, self-deception, deceptions of others, and to live in a natural kind of harmony. And this vow is also about having the courage to live in truth to be truthful, to face what is true, which is hard. Sometimes it's hard to face what is true. We don't really want to. It's too large, it's too painful, it's too complicated. The consequences are too grave. When we look at these truths within ourselves, it's a basic aspect of practice, right? We kind of come into a collision of who we want to be, of how we want to see ourselves, and what we actually see. Which is human, right? But it is also, needs a little work. <laughs> and so to dedicate ourselves to living within truth, Dogen said the Dharma wheel unceasingly turns, and there is neither excess nor incompleteness. Sweet dew permeates the universe. Gain the essence, realize the truth. A vow to manifest truth, to not lie. Will you maintain this? I vow to manifest truth. I will, I will. And this is a precept, a good example of how if we adhere to that too tightly and think that we must always speak the truth, which may just mean our sense of things, our opinion, that sometimes that will create unnecessary harm. And so from the Mahayana perspective of compassion, sometimes we need to speak in a way that is not rigidly holding to that, but is still based in what is true. The next pure precept is to proceed clearly, to not cloud the mind. Practice is about discovering your originally pure Buddha mind, your enlightened mind, which is bright and wondrous and miraculous in its awareness. When we don't, haven't experienced that, a distracted mind can actually be quite tempting and alluring. The things that dim and numb our mind can sometimes be seem quite compelling when we're facing things that are difficult. And so this precept is to hold us and bring us back to our desire to actually discover that clear, radiant mind by not clouding it. And to realize, see, the intention often in our wanting to cloud the mind, trying to numb, trying to escape, trying to avoid. But when we sober up again, there it all is again, right? And it's now harder. When we encounter our true self, we no longer are seeking escape because we realize that's just an illusion. That's like an internal magic show. It's not real. The only the, the 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 real way to unburden ourselves is to begin to face what is true. And then we realize how much is possible. Everywhere we go, we find ourselves. Right? It's one of our first disappointments in coming into practice, right? <laughs> right? We thought we were getting away. But it's also, when we, if we are sincere, it's our, it's our salvation. Dogen says, The mind is the originally pure and clear Buddha mind. Do not let it become cloudy. Do not be defiled. Vow to proceed clearly. Do not cloud the mind. Will you maintain this? I vow to proceed clearly, I will not cloud mind. And traditionally this points to intoxicants of all kinds, but, you know, there's so many ways we can cloud our mind. Entertainment, media, work, incessant news. The next great precept is to see the perfection, to not speak of others' errors and faults. Language, the Buddha realizes, is incredibly powerful. It's not just a force in the world, but it's co-creating our consciousness, our sense of self. Language is, is miraculous, but how do we use it? Any force, anything that has a lot of force, can be used to create a lot of harm or to do a lot of good. And so errors and faults, mistakes, that we discover within ourselves and others is an essential part of the practice path? How else can we practice what is good and alleviate what is harmful? We have to know the difference. How else can we meditate if we don't see when we're wandering away from our path of meditation? But how do we do that? So to speak of others' errors and faults only to do good, never to want to hurt somebody to cause harm. To speak of others' errors and faults is at the root of every bias, every system of oppression every ism, right? To, to, to call out some characteristic, attribute it to a whole group of people, make it absolute. It's a great lie. It's a great violence and aggression. And so this precept, in a way, is very simple because it's something we all know, but it also has profound implications and recognizing that when we see something in another, if we don't recognize some aspect of that within ourselves, we're just not looking carefully. So it's also a very humbling precept. Dogan said, in the midst of the Buddha Dharma, we are the same way, the same Dharma, the same realization, the same practice. Do not speak of others' errors and faults. Do not destroy the way. Vow to seek the perfection. Do not speak of others' errors and faults. Will you maintain this? I vow to seek the perfection. I will not speak of others' errors and faults. This next precept is similar but different. Realize self and other is one. Do not elevate the self and blame others. In our mind, in our language, in an action. The sense of self is a self-creation of a self-clinging mind. To elevate ourselves and put down another, is another just a kind of trickery within our mind. It's a false view. In every moment there is only this moment. There is no one ultimately to build up or to take down. There is no person to defend or criticize, ultimately. And so in bringing someone forth, in the different ways in which we appear in terms of roles and positions, to not deceive ourselves into thinking that that has some inherent significance or value on the person, that in taking these vows, as I said before, it really puts us into a role of serving rather than elevating over anyone else. When there is no self-clinging, then we're no longer carried away by praise or crushed by blame. We can hear it, we can learn from it, but we realize it's not who we are, nor is it who anyone else is. Each person is complete. Dogen said, Buddhas and ancestors realize the absolute emptiness and the whole earth. When the great body is manifested, there is no outside or inside. When the Dharma body is manifested, there's not even a square inch of earth upon which to stand. Realize self and other as one. Do not elevate the self and blame others. Vow to maintain this. Will you maintain this? I I vow vow to realize self and and other as one. one. I will not elevate the self Blame These last three precepts take up the, what we call the three poisons of greed, anger, and delusion. This precept is to give generously, do not be withholding. Again, giving is life. We always have something to offer. This points to the Dharma that if someone is interested, is asking, that we can respond and share what we know from our own direct experience. To be withholding creates a cycle of confinement, of anxiety, of stinginess. To give generously frees us from the story of our own insufficiency that we have nothing to offer. We see that it is better to live simply and deeply rather than to be burdened with the sought-after treasure of having too much. When we hold on, we've already lost what we're clinging to. When we let go, now we can move in accord with things. Dogen said, one phrase, one verse, 10,000 forms, 100 grasses, one dharma, one realization, all Buddhas, all ancestors. Since the beginning, there never has been anything to withhold. Vow to give generously, to not be withholding. Will you maintain this? I vow to give generously. I will not be withholding. next precept is to actualize harmony to not be angry. Angry is something that we all know. We all have it within us. And it's a whole range of manifestations, impatience, irritations, annoyance, hatred. Anger is like a burning fire. It can bring the house down. But if used without self-clinging, it can be like thunder that calls people together, that gets someone's attention that helps us to really understand how important or significant something is. It can move us towards compassionate response. To live within anger is like a slow-burning illness. And so the bodhisattva is earnest about liberating ourselves and others from that slow-burning fire, which sometimes is raging for ourselves and others, recognizing that the conflict, that anger is conflict, and the conflict is in the mind, and that this precept is also saying that we should not be afraid of making the move, making the first move. And that acceptance of something, to accept something, right? We often think that if I'm not angry about something that's going on that is not right, if I accept it, that that is passive. Acceptance frees us to actually respond. Acceptance is not inaction. Dogen says, it is not regressing, it is not advancing, it's not real, it's not unreal. There's an illuminated cloud ocean, there's an ornamented cloud ocean. A vow to actualize harmony, to not be angry. Will you maintain this? I, I vow to actualize, to actualize harmony, I will, I will not be angry. I think in Dogen's comment there, he's saying, he's recognizing that it is, it has a reality, It cannot be extinguished or suppressed. That only creates more. And the last of the great precepts is to experience the intimacy of things, to not defile the three treasures. So having begun with taking refuge, this is about recognizing that the three treasures are your body and mind, your spiritual community, but really it's the whole world when we understand it completely. When we turn against the three treasures, we're turning against ourselves, our mind, our home, our path. To take refuge is to come home. When our practice is wavering, look to the three treasures and see where there is distance, see where there is a gap. Take refuge. Find your way back. Dogen said, living the Dharma with the whole body and mind is the heart of wisdom and compassion. All virtues return to the ocean of reality. You should not comment on them. Just practice them, realize them, and actualize them. Vow to experience the intimacy of things, not defile the three treasures. Will you maintain this? I vow to experiencing the intimacy of things, I will not defile the three treasures. No, just one. That's okay. These sixteen precepts, the Three Treasures, the Three Pure Precepts, and the Ten grey Precepts, have been handed down by Shakyamuni Buddha generation after generation to my teacher, to me, and now I give them to you. Will you maintain them well? I will. Will you maintain them well? I will. Will you really maintain them well? I will. Okay, three paths. <clears throat> The Buddha's robe. The Blood Lineage of the Ancestors. Mountains and Rivers Order. This is to certify that Stephanos Quilius, having fulfilled the precepts training requirements of Zen Mountain Monastery and the Mountains and Rivers Order, has on this 13th day of November, 2022, received the 16 precepts of the Buddha Way, the lineage chart, the Raksu, and has been given the Dharma name, Hogetsu. a rope. A lineage of ancestors. And this lineage of ancestors is our um, our lineage, our spiritual energy, but also in, in cl- includes in a separate document our women ancestors. Mountains and rivers this is to certify that Walter Burton has received the 16 precepts of the Buddha way, the lineage chart, the Raksu, and has been given the Dharma name Shinrin. and Rivers Order. This is to certify that Tasha Ortloff, on this 13th day of November, has received the 16 precepts of the Buddha Way, the lineage chart, the Raksu, and has been given the Dharma name Sonju. It's worth noting that this, given the lineage of the ancestors, this is a tradition that has been going on for hundreds of years. Within the Zen tradition, but beyond, in different forms, since the time of the Buddha, the Buddha's robe, blood lineage. You are right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mountains and rivers order. This is to certify that Jesse Caudill has on this ter- 13th day of November received the 16 precepts of the Buddha Way, the lineage share at the Raksu, and has been given the Dharma name Chiko. The Buddha's robe. The lineage, the ancestors. Mountains and rivers order. This is to certify that Weston Minasali, on this 13th day of November, has received the sixteen precepts of the Buddha Way, the Kichimyaku lineage chart, the Raksu, and has been given the Dharma name Chian. Okay, Choki. Everyone, please, gosh show. When sentient beings receive the Sila, they enter the realm of the Buddhas which is none other than the great enlightenment. Truly, they are the children of the Buddha. When sentient beings receive the sila, they enter the realm of the Buddhas, which is none other than the great enlightenment. Truly, they are the children of the Buddha. When sentient beings receive the sila, they enter the realm of the Buddha, which is none other than the great enlightenment. Truly, they are the children of the Buddha. So now the jisha will lead these five bodhisattvas in jihai, which is a, a walking bow through the zendo, giving each of us an opportunity to welcome them into the path of bodhisattvas by returning their bow as they pass. One of the things that this makes so very clear is that a sangha is a living thing that we bring into being every day, and that its life is determined by us, how we practice, how we create our worlds within ourselves, how we relate to each other. I've long thought of a sangha as a 2500-year, not so much experiment, but a testimony to how we can live together in a practice of harmony, which means when we we act in a way that is disharmonious, that we can learn how to meet that in a way that is skillful, that is compassionate, and that is accountable. So that on this enlightening path, as we are committed to not creating harm, but still will, that there is a way in and through So now before we finish, let me just say a few words about your names. So, Dharma names, religious names, are very common in many religious traditions. We have chosen to continue using the names um, which originate, the spiritual name originating in the time of the Buddha, a Dharma name, using Chinese characters, which is honoring our Chinese ancestors with Japanese pronunciation, which honors our Japanese ancestors <clears throat> and translating them into English. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> so Stephanos, your name Hogetsu. Ho means to set free, to release, to liberate, to release one's grasp, to let go of the hold that an attachment is not in the object, it's not in our hand, it's not even in the mind. It's like a sleight of hand. It's, a, it's a, just a perception of holding on to something, but when we look carefully we see there is nothing there. But when we don't examine it, when we don't release, it has great power. The bodhisattva path is a path of ho, oh, setting free, releasing, everything that is confined, withheld. And that muscle of clinging is very strong more than we think. It is so habitual that we can actually trust our attachments, believe in them, fight for them. Rather than seeing them as an obstacle to love, we can confuse them as love. Rather than bringing us closer, right? we, we begin to see that they drive us apart. So ho is like the great medicine that allows us to live simply and deeply. Getsu is the moon. You knew someone was going to have to become the moon. <laughs> moon is uh, the theme of our training period. We've been basking in its radiance so long ago. <clears throat> Dogen said, the moon is alone and full, its light swallows, myriad forms. This moon, this enlightenment, is nothing but your mind, mind moon. In every phase, on clear nights, on cloudy nights, when we see it, when we can't, it's always full. Being alone is to be all-complete, all-embracing in intimate contact. So, Hogetsu is to liberate the moon. It is the liberated moon. Walter, your name is Shinrin. Shin is a character, one of many characters, for truth, reality, what is authentic. It is what is unborn, uncontrived. We cannot create it. It is a result of no hand, no thought, no desire. Sometimes it appears as a two-headed, snarling dragon. Sometimes it's a gentle autumn breeze, a soothing rain. Sometimes it appears as birth or a sickness, or the last breath of a dying person. Sometimes its form can't be found at all. But it is never hidden. We are never apart from it. Yet, if we try to grasp it, we cannot. Rin is to face into, to be faced by, to be present. Though shin, reality, is ever-present, we can deceive ourselves into looking away, denying, convincing ourselves that everything is fine. Rin has the quality of courage and fearlessness and patience which we often need to face what is true, what is difficult, to reveal what has been hidden, to illuminate what seems to be in the shadow. This is the path of the bodhisattva, like a flower, continually turning towards the sun, knowing that only in that way can it come to be a full blossom. Shinrin is facing truth, facing reality. Tasha, your name, Sonju. Son is to respect, to revere. To respect, to regard, is to look at something carefully, closely, to meet it as it is in compassion, in awareness. It's like holding something close to our heart. Reverence is a way to meet the sacred without clinging. Son is reverence, which is an alive thing. It's an intimate thing. It's not an idea of sacredness or holiness or righteousness. It is actually a rejoicing, a kind of celebration in things as they are, and being able to see the wondrous qualities in simplicity. Jew is pearl. Dogen said, the world in all ten directions is one bright pearl. It's the many gem. It's a jewel of your original nature, your wisdom and compassion. You already have it. And yet, it seems to be held in the claw of the dragon. And so you must enter that cave of dragon and face her face to face and obtain that jewel, that pearl. But this dragon is not your enemy. In fact, she wants nothing more than to give it to you. But you have to know how to receive it. And you receive it in the moment when self clinging in your heart and mind has been tamed with the nectar of respect and reverence, patience and generosity. So Sanju is to rever- revere the pearl. It is the reverent pearl. <clears throat> Jesse, your name, Jiko, is to have love or compassion for. It's the great love and compassion of the Bodhisattva to feel the pain of every living being, not as an abstraction, and to want to alleviate that suffering like the love of a parent for their child. And so then the barriers and boundaries that would cause us to hesitate, to pull back, to be selfish, to be angry, must fall away, to reveal that natural, basic love. Ko is peace, ease, happiness. It's the way. Our habits of self-clinging, our greed, anger, jealousy, bitterness, can be very strong. We can resist our natural compassion, actually, and seek out our suffering. We not only can, we do. When our heart opens through practice, sometimes we get nervous, anxious, fearful, and we resort back, close those doors again. Having been hurt before, it's hard to trust again. And so that's why it's a long path, step by step, Opening that compassionate heart, that love for peace, happiness, the way. Chico is to have compassion for compassion itself, to have love for true happiness that is free of any possessiveness. It is the great bodhisattva's heart. Chico, compassion for peace, compassionate peace. And Weston, your name Chian. Chi <coughs> is the earth the ground, deeply rooted all the way. Living, alive, dynamic. It's the source of all life. It is all life. There's nothing apart from it. And it is also utterly stable. At the same time that it is utterly responsive. It goes through cycles. It evolves. But it is always the earth. On is peace, calm, relaxed, at ease, similar to co. It is without conflict. It is immediately present without being fooled by discriminating consciousness. It is a peace that runs all the way through. And so when there's agita- agitation, like when the pond surface is rippling, waves appear, it will naturally find its peace. It's there. We can't create it. We can't make the surface of that pond be clear and calm. It's naturally so when we cease from agitating. And even when the surface is agitated, if you go just a little bit below, qi is there. That ground, that earth, that stability. So qian is to make peace with the earth, with this ground. It is also peaceful ground at the same time. In receiving these vows today, in the presence of your sangha, and your family, and your friends, you've entered into the profound implications of living a life, a vow, that is dedicated to awakening and manifesting compassion, and seeing the undivided reality between yourself and others. That these precepts are no rule, So they are neither rigid, but nor are they relativistic. They are never ambivalent, though sometimes we may be unclear about how to proceed. The precepts themselves are never unclear. They arise from the great dharmakaya, your own basic nature. They have been given to you and received by you today, so now they are in your hands, in your body, your responsibility. And in the presence of the sangha, you've made these vows. So now you are a living link, in this great tradition that goes back to the time of the Buddha. We should not take that lightly. With these vows, your practice in your life has changed in ways that you recognize and in ways that you are yet to recognize. So stick around. (laughs) That's the nature of a vow. A vow is a mad thing. It is a crazy thing. You leap off a cliff. You know that you do not know what is before you. And that is your leaping. That is your courage. That is your faith. That is your madness. So you may you bring the fruits of that to this great world of ours. May your life go well. Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about our ongoing programs and residency opportunities, visit ZMM.org.